Thanks for joining Sapelo Nerds, a coastal science podcast. I'm your host, Corinne. And I'm your host, Brittany. And we work at the National Estuarine Research Reserve, or NEAR, on Sapelo Island, a Georgia barrier island. We have talked before about the rich history that Sapelo Island has, but most of what we covered was during the written historical period. So today we'd like to dig into a bit of Sapelo's Native American history. This period can be a little bit challenging to interpret. Yeah, sometimes historians can use old and often rare manuscripts, even written on leaves or dried animal skins. But to understand Native American history without the presence of written records, archaeologists study artifacts such as stone and shell tools, rock carvings, implements made from animal bones, pottery pieces, and more to develop theories about what past cultures and societies were like. To do this, archaeologists and anthropologists use methods from the social and natural sciences such as geology, molecular genetics, excavation, social science, and paleontology. Sapelo has a rich history, with many different native tribes playing a part in its legacy over the past 5,000 years. In recent history, the first owner of the island was said to be Mary Musgrove, or Kusaponakisa, who was the daughter of a Creek Native American mother and an English father. She served as a Muskegon interpreter for James Oglethorpe, the founder of Colonial Georgia. She claimed Sapelo, St. Catharines, and Osaba Islands in payment for her service and was given permission by the Lower Creek Chief Malatichi. Although colonial leaders contested her claims after Oglethorpe's death, the Georgia legislator eventually sold Sapelo Island and gave the proceeds to Musgrove, and she was allowed to keep St. Catharines, where she died around 1763. This was a few decades before Thomas Spaulding bought 4,000 acres at the south end of Sapelo Island. With all that history just waiting to be uncovered, many researchers come from all over the world to study the interesting dynamics that our isolated island presents. Without much development, Sapelo is an archaeologist's treasure trove. That's right. Sapelo has been a bit of a time capsule with numerous historical sites, including Spalding's Long Tabby Complex, where we are recording from. There's also rich Gullah Geechee artifacts and personal histories from Behavior Cemetery, Bourbon Field, Chocolate Plantation, Raccoon Bluff, High Point Plantation, and Pumpkin Hammock. And don't forget the prehistoric sites, including the shell rings and High Point settlement. Bottles, metal, tack, button, nails, jewelry, glass, ceramics, both historic and prehistoric, as well as lithics or drawings have all been found at these sites. To learn more about the specific artifacts found in Sapelo, the link in our episode description will take you to the Digital Archaeological Record, which contains the digital resources for all the Georgia Department of Natural Resources Historic Preservation Division's records pertaining to Sapelo Island. It also includes some materials maintained by members of the Sapelo Island Archaeological Research Consortium. Many of the artifacts found and documented on that site were from the Guale people during the mission period. The arrival of Spanish missionaries on the Georgia and Florida coasts in the mid-16th century began what is known as the Mission Period, which was from 1568 to 1684. During this period, there were a lot of interaction between the Spanish and many coastal native tribes. At the time of Spanish contact, much of the central and northern Georgia coast was occupied by Muskegon-speaking people known as the Wale, spelled G-U-A-L-E, in case you'd like to look them up. Did you know Sapelo actually got its name during this time period? The name Sapelo was derived from the Franciscan mission San Jose de Zapala, established by Spanish missionaries on the island. This mission, along with many others, eventually came under attack by English-backed slave raiders and pirates along the coast. 
According to a paper written by professors Christopher Moore of University of Indianapolis and Richard Jeffries from the University of Kentucky, we still don't know exactly where the San Jose de Zapala mission was on Sapelo. Researchers believe it was on the north end of the island, at or just north of the Shell Ring Complex, a series of indigenous mounds which represents one of the most unique archaeological features on the Georgia coast. And I know there's hundreds of different archaeological sites on Sapelo, but for me, the shell rings and middens have always been the most fascinating. Known to some on the island as the Sapelo Island Shell Ring Complex, this site consists of multiple donut-shaped mounds built from successive layers of different types of shell, including oysters, whelk, clams, and mussel. The rings rise pretty high, about 20 feet above the tidal marsh, and the largest of the three has a diameter of over 255 feet. Portions of the site have been radiocarbon dated to 2170 BC, making it older than many of Egypt's pyramids. Similar sites have been discovered in Florida, such as the Horse Island Mounds and the Wana River Shell Rings, which are even older. Some similar sites exist in South Carolina, as well as on the other sea islands of Georgia. There are several theories out there about why these rings were built. One theory holds that they were built purposefully in a short burst of building activity, such as for monuments or ceremonial centers. Another theory suggests that they were walls as a form of defense, similar to circular villages that have been found in North Florida. And yet another theory suggests that they were unintentionally built over many years as villagers discarded their trash. This theory, which archaeologists working on Sapelo think is the most accurate, it holds that the circular shape of the shell rings was the result of those people living in circular villages and discarding their trash behind their homes, which resulted in a circular trash ring that gradually built up over time. But while the original builders may not have intended to create a monument, archaeology shows that later peoples clearly kept coming back to these rings long after they were no longer active villages, sometimes to feast and conduct rituals. Can you imagine someone going through your trash years later to learn about you? Oh yeah, I'm sure they'd learn a lot. Mostly they would just think I had a huge eating problem from all the honey bun wrappers. Oh yeah, it's hard work trying to make sense of prehistoric diets, but yours would definitely throw for future archaeologists for a loop. I'd be depicted as 300 pounds easily, or maybe a devout follower of Little Debbie. <laughs> well, archaeologists believe these people had a pretty varied diet as well. The diet of these villagers 4,000 years ago is remarkably similar to those living in the area today, minus the dolphins, dogs, turtles, and herons they used to eat. The Sapelo shell rings are filled with not only various types of shells, but also the bones of fish such as catfish and mullet, mammals such as deer and raccoon, and reptiles such as alligator. So, in other words, the shell rings are built from the refuge of daily living, and Research suggests that this garbage accumulated over a long period of time, as opposed to being deposited in single building event, as one would expect if the rings were intentional monuments. So more support seems to be mounting for this garbage dump circle theory. That's our current interpretation, and another finding that supports this theory is the circular form of the rings themselves. If they had been built as an intentional monument, one would expect the circle to be more symmetrical and the height to be more uniform. Instead, the ring has a pretty lumpy appearance, as if the residents continue dumping their trash between and on top of original shell heaps. What does seem to be intentional, though, is the central area within the shell rings. Their central plazas appear to be purposely constructed as a location for ceremonies, feasts, dances, games, and other activities of village life. 
Archaeologist Dr. Victor Thompson at UGA, University of Georgia, researched and excavated this site over several years. Thompson noted that the interior of the shell ring was lower than the ground level outside the shell ring. He proposed that this could have resulted from the villagers repeatedly cleaning the central plaza area by sweeping and dumping this refuge into the shell ring. This would have added to the height of the ring while simultaneously lowering the ground level within the ring. Particularly noteworthy about the Sapelo shell ring complex is the fact that some of the oldest pottery in North America was found here. The natives of Sapelo appear to be some of the first people in North America to settle down into permanent villages. This was made possible by the extensive natural resources located around the site. In fact, even today, this area is one of the most productive estuaries on the east coast of North America. The people who first settled Sapelo no longer needed to migrate to find food on a seasonal basis, and instead could stay in one place and still have all their needs met. It is believed that this new lifestyle facilitated the creation of the new pottery technology. Research also shows it's possible that Sapelo was on the receiving end of a large-scale immigration event about 500 years ago. In the late pre-contact period, from around 1300 AD to 1550 AD, complex political systems referred to as chiefdoms by archaeologists collapsed throughout the Midwest and Southeast region. Entire regions reverted to more localized ways of life after hundreds of years of these complex hierarchical political organizations. The impact of these collapses and migrations on the Georgia coast have been extensively studied by Dr. Brandon Richardson. Dr. Richardson has written about a potential mass immigration event on the Georgia coast and the resultant socio-political transformations of the ancestral Native Americans that inhabited it. We are lucky enough to have Dr. Brandon Richardson on our show today. Hi, Dr. Richardson. Can you talk a little bit about what your specific research on Sapelo involved? Hi, Corinne. Hi, Brittany. It's great to be here. I wish I was actually on the island with you all, but I have to wait a few more months before I get to come back to Sapelo. Archaeological research, you know, is back and forth from the field to the lab, but the fieldwork component really is irreplaceable. Archaeologists only have the material traces of past people to work with, as you already discussed, but, you know, it's not just trash, but changes to soil chemistry, topography, and the overall environment, too. My work on Sapelo actually focused on a lesser-known site uh, called Kennan Field. And while it doesn't feature on island tours or in the visitor center, we now know that this site was one of the most extensive sites in all of Georgia. And it was occupied consistently since before the establishment of the shell rings you talked about over 4,500 years ago. My interests uh, are in how local peoples adapted to and accommodated new arrivals from the neighboring Savannah River Valley after its major political centers and, and villages were depopulated in the latter half of the 1300s, largely due to the pressures of recurrent drought events that we can see in ancient tree rings. Kennan Field was the ideal choice of study sites since it was a large village that was occupied before, during, and after the resultant immigration event. That's fascinating. I've been to Kennan Field several times since starting at the reserve, and it doesn't really look like an archaeological site anymore. But I guess that's what's so neat about being an archaeologist is that you get to see natural sites from a very different perspective than us wildlife nerds. So can you tell us a little bit about what being an archaeologist is like in general? I mean, Indiana Jones always springs to mind for most people, but I know the study of anthropology is really about human behavior and shifting through the lives of the past. You know, less whip-swinging and buried treasure. So that's very true. But it also depends on where you work. 
You know, on Sapelo and in much of the coastal southeast, a whip isn't really nearly as useful as a machete. But we do need to be prepared for some sometimes rough field conditions. You know, there's, there's still definitely adventure to be had when doing really any kind of field science. But unlike Indiana Jones, most archaeologists aren't going after tombs and temples and mythologically spectacular artifacts. Like you said, we're interested in refuse, trash, most of all, because this really tells us how past peoples actually lived day to day. You know, archaeologists, we have to be comfortable out in the field on hot, cold, wet, windy days, but we also have to be prepared to spend weeks or months cleaning ancient trash with an old toothbrush, so we can clearly see the designs and manufacturing techniques that we're most interested in on the artifacts that we collect. And you follow that with even more weeks spent in front of a computer, analyzing and writing up our findings. Personally, I like this cycle of work. You know, after a few weeks of sweating your pants off in the heat of the summer, heading back to the AC of the lab is very welcome. But then after a couple semesters of teaching and writing, I'm ready to head back into the field to get my hands dirty. You know, it really keeps things fresh. We can really relate to getting back to some AC after spending a while in the field. But getting to do both field work and office work is one of my favorite things about working on Sapelo. How is your field experience on Sapelo different from other locations you've studied? I love working on Sapelo. I first came down over 10 years ago now, and I just keep coming back. You know, for one thing, it has a rich and interesting archaeological and historic record that we've started to introduce here on the podcast, but there's cool archaeology and history everywhere. What sets Sapelo apart to me is its community, you know, its residents, staff, and researchers who all have deep connections of different sorts to the island. You know, from community potlucks, to talks at the Marine Institute, to random run-ins on the back roads or beaches. You know, when you're on Sapelo, you never know what new, neat connection you might make with someone else. A lot of my research engages with how people in the past developed political systems that were necessary to collectively manage and access the rich and varied resources of the coastal estuaries. It was important that people came together to share their observations, experiences, and expertise, and that is still true today. You know, for example... You never know when you're going to learn something useful and fascinating about, like, a, a kind of marsh snail from a marine institute ecologist uh, that you find in an archaeological shell midden. Um, and midden, that's, a, that's another word for trash pile. You know, Sapelo residents themselves are also a wealth of information about where we can find archaeological sites, sometimes dating back thousands of years, or sometimes sites where someone's grandparents and parents lived. You don't just get this kind of inbuilt knowledge and collaborative spirit and any old place. Yeah, the rich personal histories on Sapelo are really interesting, and the community is so welcoming. We love to collaborate with folks on the island whenever we can. You can always learn something new and often surprising from the people out here. But did your research about past peoples on Sapelo and coastal Georgia surprise you or reveal anything you weren't expecting? Oh, for sure. You know, when we dig into the ground, we never quite know what we'll find. We typically have a good idea of what we might expect, but surprises are almost kind of a goal. And sometimes, you know, you don't even know that you found something surprising until you go back and look at everything all together. And that was the case for me at Kennan Field. My research involved excavating hundreds of evenly spaced pits across the site so I could understand how artifacts from different occupations over the centuries were distributed in space. I wanted to see if the physical layout of the village at Kennan Field changed as it potentially received migrants from the Savannah River Valley. Based on other archaeological projects around the world, I expected to see that the village would have grown somewhat, but then quickly downsized as populations of the site came to basically overwhelm their own ability to mediate the social tensions that naturally occur when people start living in close quarters. 
you know, everyone's got problems with roommates and neighbors, right? <laughs> but instead, I found that not only did the population explode at the site, but the people actually began living more closely together rather than splitting apart. Now, this tells me that residents at the site at that time, you know, probably locals and recent immigrants both, found new ways to cooperate and coordinate and resolve disputes. Based on Muscogee history and other archaeology, this was probably through the establishment or the elaboration of council houses. These were places where village leaders could come together to discuss and resolve issues under the oversight of village residents. You know, accountability matters in a democratic society. And for the ancestral Muscogee, and the Muscogee today, this accountability and seeking of broad consensus was how these villages held together during difficult and challenging times. I think that's something that we can all still learn from today. Your main focus of the transformations of past peoples related to migration and environment has a lot of valuable lessons for today's generation. At the reserve, we focus a lot on sea level rise and climate stressors in our research. Is there anything that we can learn from past peoples about those issues? Climate change is nothing new to the human species generally, nor to the native residents of North America specifically. However, the scale of change and its increasing rapidity, you know, along with modern limitations on economic and settlement flexibility that were key to native adaptive strategies in the past, mean that we're dealing with a new situation today. That said, understanding how past peoples were able to preserve their culture and traditions during times of environmental stress can help us conceive of solutions to contemporary issues. You know, for example, I think that the transparency and accessibility of the political process that occurred in these ancient council houses should be something that we could try to emulate today. Climate change is causing unique problems for people in differing environments all across the globe, but we can truly only hope to address this crisis through collective action. Understanding how people managed to do that in the past might help us do so today. But practically, we are going to be dealing with irreversible impacts going forward, regardless of the degree of our response today and into the future. As you say, sea level rise is the impact at the front and center of the world's coasts. For me, as an archaeologist that studies island and coastal societies, I'm concerned about the immense loss of cultural resources, artifacts, and sites that's already underway. Archaeologists have always known that we can't dig up everything, uh, and nor would we want to. It'd be incredibly time-consuming and we'd get diminishing returns, if I'm being quite honest. But knowing that in a century or so, the archaeological record of Saplo Island will be irrevocably changed or entirely lost to sea level rise is a harsh reality. I think that the archaeological and coastal community at large can come together to save what we can before we run out of time, if we put our minds to it. Since these historic areas are facing so much risk, what are some ways that people can be good stewards of the past? I know with all these artifacts around us, it can be tempting to go out and look for pottery shards or carved shells. But what are ways that people can help not only respect these artifacts, but also learn more about them? Yes, everyone can and should be a steward of the past. Now, while I lament the loss of the archaeological record of the coast to sea level rise, it's important to know that I'm not just talking about the artifacts. An artifact doesn't mean much to an archaeologist alone. It's the context that matters. Where an artifact was found, what it was found with, and even the kind of soil it was found in are all key bits of information. So, to be a good steward, it's important to resist the temptation to pick up an artifact you find on the ground, or one eroding out of a creek bank. Every state has a state archaeologist that is responsible for recording archaeological sites, and particularly those at risk of loss. If you find a concentration of artifacts, particularly if they are at risk of loss or destruction, you should report this to your state archaeologist. 
Sometimes folks worry that they'll lose rights or something if they report an archaeological site that's on their property, but this really isn't the case. And for an archaeologist, just knowing that a site is or was in a certain location can be an important clue in helping archaeologists understand how people lived in the past. Well, that's good to know. I guess it's okay now to admit that I may or may not have an expensive collection of artifacts in my home. But what is one thing that you never get asked about your research or archaeology in general that you wish people knew? Well, maybe first it's that I'm not a paleontologist. Archaeologists don't do dinosaurs. It's a really common point of confusion. Um, but, but more seriously, I, I wish that more people appreciated that Native Americans aren't an extinct people. Despite their forced removal from their homelands, native peoples are still here today. Archaeologists don't study long-dead or lost civilizations. Nearly all of us are studying the lifeways of living people's ancestors. I feel fortunate that I get to talk with Muscogee archaeologists and historical experts. This makes my research better, and can suggest to all of us in the archaeological community how best to make our work valuable to people today, particularly these descendant communities. And as we deal with climate change, indigenous nations are going to be vitally important to our collective response. That's a really great point, and one that all of the NEARS have tried to incorporate into our strategic planning. Traditional ecological knowledge is incredibly valuable. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Dr. Richeson. It has been amazing to hear about your work and your experience on Sapelo. I'm not a big history person, so I feel like I learned a lot today. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to dig into Sapelo's past. Oh darn, Corinne, I forgot to ask Dr. Richeson if he had an update about a new study on the island. Our archaeologists are looking into whether Sapelo Tabby was stronger than normal cement is now. But I hear they're still waiting on some concrete evidence. <laughs> wow, did you read about that in the new archaeology book? It's really groundbreaking. Oh my gosh, Cran, that joke is so old. It's prehysterical. <laughs> For more information about any of the topics we covered today or to submit your question that may be featured in our upcoming episodes, please email us at signer.socials at gmail.com. That's S-I-N-E-R-R dot socials at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Sapelo Nerds, a coastal science podcast brought to you by the Sapelo Island National Estuarine Research Reserve. Please check back for more episodes released on the 1st and the 15th of each month. And that's the Sapelo Sound. <laughs>